Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1035, air date February 17th, 2022. Oh, but, okay, but that's but okay? He, okay, so no it, problem. No, no, but he needs to be, leave him so he has access to Zoom. Okay. We need to right. set him back to attendee. Yashika, if you can do that. So John, you're going to be an attendee, right? Or do you want to be a panelist, John? It'll give me a bit better view as an attendee because I want to have the controls on the screen. Okay. Simi, I have noted your question. You have asked it a hundred times. No need to ask you ask so much. I have noted your question. We will be asking Dr. Shiva. Right? So you have asked it about maybe 50, 60 times. Yes, Neha, we are all excited. Um, somebody was asking about truckers' protest. No, we will not be discussing truckers' protest. We will not be discussing anything political or something. We are only discussing innovation. We want you to be innovators. Nothing else. Be very clear. Shiva, we're live. We're live. Okay, Vineet, we can go live. Great. So, welcome everybody. First, I'll uh, like to thank Dr. Shiva for this great opportunity and to host him and to inspire students of India. And I'd like to thank Dr. Niharika for her exceptional support in putting this through. And, uh, and all the people here, all the students here who took their time out, I know it's a busy, busy schedule and especially with offline classes, they're still listening to things that's uh, awesome. Recording right. in progress. So we have got about five, six hundred students already, and I'm very sure this number will keep on going up as we progress. So, uh, not stopping back. I'll uh, uh, before I start, I'll just uh, run through a presentation where uh, in December 15th, I think I showed uh, the students first time the picture of Dr. Shiva. So I'll just go to the 14th slide one by one, so you know what I we think, were discussing. I think so we were discussing emails and I said that telegraph was the first time through binary we were uh, like sending messages, then electrical telegraphy, moving on to Morse code, ticker tapes, teleprinters and this uh, letter wheel, then paging services started, this is all sequential by dates, so pagers and then Raymond Tomlinson who just sent a message a uh, message, uh, basically, uh, you can read this word. This is the word that was sent and with an at the rate. But mm, at MIT, uh, this was supposed to be invented uh, on what first version of some uh, this thing, where uh, messages were being transferred between uh, system through time sharing, which is something complex. I can't understand. So Dr. Shiva will explain. But um, then in ARPANET, Queen Elizabeth sends a message, but these are messages, not emails. Let us understand from Dr. Shiva himself. He created a program called email. Even I think Dr. Shiva, the word email was given by you. Right? Yes. So I can't see you. Are you just, all I see is some slides. Am I on here too, Vineet? Yeah, you are on, but I'll, I'll just uh, go here. So this was a patent that Dr. Shiva took. And now I'll. Uh, introduce Dr. Shiva and then he can continue from here. I am just showing these slides. These slides the students had already seen in December. So I was just taking them through it again, where for the first time they were heard, heard of you. What kicked me into contact contacting you and getting you here? Right? So now I'll just um, uh, tell a little about you. So Dr. V.A. Shiva Ayadurai, the inventor of email and polymath holds four degrees from MIT, which is Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is a world-renowned system, system scientist. He's a Fulbright scholar, 
Lemelson MIT Award finalist, first outstanding scientist and technologist of Indian origin, Westinghouse Science Talent Honors Award recipient, and was nominated for the US National Medal of Technology and Innovation. In 1982, the US government recognized Ayadurai as the inventor of email by awarding him the first copyright for email at a time when copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. His interest in human health also began early when as a child, he observed his grandmother, a village farmer and healer, practice Siddh, the India's oldest system of traditional medicine. This motivated his future study and research in systems biology at MIT, leading to his discovery of systems health, a major breakthrough that provides an integrative framework linking Eastern and Western medicine. His latest invention, Cytosol, emerging from his doctoral research at MIT, provides a revolutionary platform for modeling complex biological phenomena to support the development of multi-combination medicines without animal testing. So it's a, a very um, like ethical approach to testing. And I'll end this on a note of what Einstein said, because this is very important to today's seminar. Einstein said, what is right is not always popular. And what is popular is not always right. So that's about Dr. Shiva, because his invention of email may not be as popular as other name, but what is right is not always popular. So Dr. Shiva, over to you. Great, Vineet. What I just, I don't see our side by side. What I see is this graphic, so I'm not sure what's being broadcast. Okay, I can I just first. Uh, hey, John. Stop. I stopped yeah. the share, right? Oh, okay. So now it's up so, with you. You can share. Is it a side by side view of the panelists, or how is it? Yeah, it is right now. We uh, like uh, are seeing uh, eight panelists here. Oh, you are? Okay. Right. Uh, let me see. Let me just make sure. So okay. I, I'm in gallery view. So maybe because of that, I see that. So I'm not right. changing the view. Yeah. Yeah. So I just see you, Beneath, and I just see people on the top. Is that how it's supposed to be? Yes. Yes. I'm going to do a gallery. Okay. Hi. So anyway, this is Dr. Shiva Adure. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Let me just uh, make a couple of prefatory remarks. First of all, the invention of email by a 14-year-old boy that occurred in Newark, New Jersey. In fact, there's no controversy even on this, Vineet. The real question is why it was there a controversy created, number one, when the facts are actually black and white. Mm -hmm. And when we say email, let's be very specific. We're talking about the system, the emulation of the inner office mail system, the inbox, the outbox, the folders which is what I created in 1978, which was never done before as a 14-year-old dark-skinned Indian boy growing up in Newark, New Jersey, uh, which is one of the, uh, 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 you know, it's one of the poorest cities in the United States. And it was there I was given resources because as a 14-year-old kid, I got a job working as a full-time research fellow, which is also quite extraordinary. I was a very hardworking student, but I was also, I played baseball and soccer, so I wasn't just a nerd. Uh, my parents were, uh, you know, India has a caste system. Some of you may know my parents came from that environment. So it was a one in a trillion opportunity that they came to the United States. Uh, I came to the United States when I was seven years old. Um, and by the time I was 14, I'd finished calculus. By the ninth grade, my high school had no other courses to offer me. So I uh, got a opportunity to go study as a 14-year-old kid in New York University. Computer science I was one of 40 students selected. So I used to take the train at five, six in the morning into New York, study and come back. And then after that, I got a full-time job while I was going to high school. So that's, those are the uh, background. So when I started working in this medical school, which I'll talk more about, I was given the opportunity to do initially medical research because I was very interested in medical research and I was creating 
pattern recognition algorithms for understanding why babies were dying in their sleep. But it was in that college, a small medical college, that I was given the opportunity to convert the entire inner office mail system. Now, anyone over the age of 40 will remember how paper was processed in those old days. Let me give you an example here, okay? By the way, here's a, by the way, if anyone wants to go, people should go to our website, bhiva.com. But you know, just to give you the background, I grew up not only in Bombay uh, as a young child, I came to the United States in 1970, literally left India on my seventh birthday, but I also grew up in this environment small villages in India where my grandparents were poor village farmers. So I grew up in two worlds and I was very aware of this caste system. And my grandmother was a Siddha healer. So she could observe someone's face and determine what was going on in their body. So when I was 14, I started working full-time at a medical school when I came to the United States and I was trying to understand why babies were dying in their sleep. So as a full-time 14-year-old researcher, I was looking at sleep patterns to try to predict the onset of death. So, but in that university, they had this thing called the inter-office mail system. Okay. This system was a system. So typically the secretary in those days had a typewriter. She had folders. She had the inbox, the outbox, as you can see on the desk, attachments, like paper clips, trash can below her desk. And they would write these things called a memo. This was a memo. It had a very particular structure, memorandum to, from, CC, literally meant Carbon paper was used to take one piece of paper, carbon paper, another to make CC. So if you had to make 10 CCs, you'd be typing 10 times or nine times. Okay. BCC came from there, date, subject. And this was a memo at the bottom. It had enclosed, which means you could attach a enclosure. So just to be clear on this, let's say in this university, the doctor, by the way, this is a small university, thousands of offices. Every office had a secretary, always a woman. The doctor in the morning would go and dictate to the secretary, write this memo, and she would write a memo in that structure. Let's say they decided to hire someone. Let's say they decided to hire John, right? So they, so the doctor would dictate a letter, and the secretary would type away, and maybe they would attach to that John's resume, okay? And they would put to blah, blah, blah uh, from Dr. X, and they may CC the HR department, other people, and they would circulate this memo, okay? This was the inter-office mail system. And just to make it clear, this is a system. This is not the simple exchange of text messages. And this letter would be put in this inter-office mail thing and it would be sent around in these pneumatic tubes, okay? They had these pneumatic tubes. So some of you may not know this, but this was the inter-office mail system. So these tubes would be in these offices, okay? And that's how email was processed. Now, I was asked to convert this entire system. So I'm not sure if um, your school teaches people what a system is. A system is a complex network of interconnected parts. So we're talking about the inbox, the outbox, the folders, the trash can, the CC, to, from, subject. That entire system, registered mail, blind carbon copy. Those had never, this entire system had never existed in electronic form until I did it. And what I was asked to convert that entire system into the electronic form. Now you have to understand in 1978, you know who used computers? Old white men with lab coats, and you have to know complex computer programming, okay, to even use a computer. Secretaries were using typewriters. So if you can go back now, 36, 46 years, whatever the time was, right? There, and you can put yourself in, women were typically a secretary, uh, a nurse, a teacher, or a housewife. So the thought of a woman ever using a computer was unheard of, okay? So what did I do? And many of the doctors, when I was building this, said, why are you wanting to do this? You know, it is very easy for me to simply dictate to my secretary, and she writes the memo. So they didn't want email because this meant they may have to do more work, okay? And the secretaries were not gonna leave the computer, the typewriter and move to the keyboard unless that system had all those hundreds of features, inbox, outbox, folders, to, from, subject, CC, attachments, registered mail. There was a whole bunch of features, like a hundred features. So as a 14 year old kid, I wrote 50,000 lines of software code to implement every one of those features. And I named that system email. The first person who ever coined that term. Why did I call it email? Because 
the operating system only allowed six characters, five, sorry, five characters, and, and the Fortran programming language allowed six and everything had to be in uppercase, okay? So I wrote 50,000 lines of code, worked until two to three in the morning, went to high school and played soccer and played baseball, okay? And this was done separately, okay? And in fact, I won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards for this. There is a, let me show you this. Um, there was a, this was not unknown, okay? So I named it email. This is the official code, all right? And there's me, me as a 14-year-old kid, my teacher, my math teacher, and there's my mentor. And I was explaining to him what I had just created. And there's a US copyright. So let me tell you what happened here. I called this, named it email, wrote the code. And this was in 1978. You have to understand in 1978, this medical school was not in Silicon Valley. We were very open. We didn't make people sign secrecy documents. Hewlett Packard came and saw my code. IBM came in and saw it. Okay. To me, it was a big opportunity to create. I wasn't into protecting my in invention. Um, on September 1981, I came to MIT. I was accepted uh, to MIT. In fact, I came to MIT with so many credits, I could have graduated MIT in two years. Okay. And I was elected student body president. And I was invited to the president of MIT's home, Paul Gray, who was the science advisor to the president. And he had heard about my invention because it was listed on the front page of the MIT newspaper because they highlighted three kids out of 1,041 kids. I was one of them. Now, I was brought up to be a humble Indian. Indians are always brought up to be very humble. Okay. So I said, oh, that's nice. So when I went to the president's house, he said, you know, those, this was in 1981. And he said, you know, it's too bad that the politicians do not understand software which means you could not patent software. There was no concept of software patents. The politicians thought software was something you wrote. But in 1980, which I didn't know, the Copyright Act of 1976 had been amended to become the Computer Software Act of 1980, which allowed you to take software inventions and use copyright law. And remember, my parents weren't rich, wealthy lawyers like Bill Gates's lawyers, parents. I wrote away for those forms as a 17-year-old kid, filled it out, submitted it, and August 30th, 1982, a teenager gets recognized by the United States government as the inventor of email. It's black and white. So I wrote all the code, named it email, and I have the copyright. Okay? And then I went on my merry way doing four degrees at MIT inventing many other things. In fact, I was featured on the front page of MIT for inventing many things. But on November 11th, 2011, my mother, who was dying of a horrible disease, she had three months to live, had saved all of those things from 1970 in a beautiful suitcase. The code, the software, everything. The editor of Time Magazine, and you should really put that up, Okay. He was the only journalist who went through all the materials to this date. And he wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. If you haven't seen it, uh, you know, let me show it to you. Okay. So, um, so it was uh, Doug Ameth wrote an article. Where is that? Right here. Okay. Called The Man Who Invented Email. And he was the only journalist who actually went through the material. All of these things that my mother had saved, all of those materials. And that was November 11th, 2011. And then the two biggest museums in the world contacted me, the Smithsonian and the Computer History Museum. And they said, Dr. Shiba, we want your materials. This was like a new skull had been found in Africa, resetting the origin of where human beings came from, literally. Okay. So on February 16th, 2012, I was honored by the Smithsonian. They did a big ceremony. And my materials were accepted into the number one, the world's leading museum in the world. The next day, an African woman reporter for the Washington Post wrote an article called Dr. Shiva Adre honored as the inventor of email. And that's when the proverbial shit hits the fan. Okay, excuse my language. What do I mean by that? 
You see, up until 2012, there was a multi-billion dollar company called Raytheon, a missile developer. They had found this, they had um, merged with a company called BBNN and Raytheon's missile sales were going down and they were entering into the cybersecurity market and they were making $270 million. They had rebranded their company with the at symbol saying they were the inventors of email. Now, if you go read this fellow who has a beard and he looks like a nerd, okay, he will admit he only wrote, he did 15 minutes of work to take an old protocol called FTP and add the ability to attach text to the bottom, okay, of a file. That's like a caveman version of Reddit. That's not email. He didn't call it email. It's the simple exchange of text messages. If you want to give credit then to the simple exchange of text messages, go back to 1939, which was done with the radio teletype. So these people conflated what he did with the at symbol. You use the at symbol in Twitter. It's not email. Okay. Simple exchange of text messages. I created email, the system, inbox, outbox folders. When you log into email, what do you see? Inbox, outbox folders, to, from, subject, CC. That's what I did. He did simple exchange of text messages, which would make Twitter email, which would make WhatsApp email, which would make text messaging email. It's not email. Email is email, which I called and I defined it. So after uh, November, uh, uh, February 16, 2012, when this became big news, you saw these racist, liberal, white historians who had already written the history of email, that it was done by this military industrial company. And they attacked me, called me a fraud, an asshole, a dick, horrible names. And I was teaching a course at MIT, running my company for free, one of the number one courses. And thousands of emails come in because people were so horrified. How dare I claim my rightful place in history? And in fact, I never wanted the publicity. It was the Smithsonian wanted it. And then the news came out. And the racism that I endured, but it wasn't only racism, you see, it was the fact that email was not created at MIT. You see, up in between 1981 to that point, I had was teaching at MIT. I had four degrees from MIT. I was had won every major award at MIT. I was featured on the newspaper for many things. In fact, I was featured in Technology Review for when I invented another technology called EchoMail. But when I said that email was done before I came to MIT, this causes a problem because the brainwashing is you go to MIT and you go to Harvard and then you're intelligent. You see, the problem they had with me was I was intelligent before I came to MIT and I was intelligent after I came to MIT. I was an innovator before I came to MIT and I was an innovator after. So this, the truth about the invention of email is really not about the invention of email because those facts are black and white. The truth is, why was there a controversy? And every Indian needs to understand this because Indians have been brainwashed to think all great innovations occur by white people. The thought of, a, you people see pictures of Mozart, six-year-old boy who wrote great symphonies. Oh, that's acceptable. But a 14-year-old Indian dark-skinned kid creating email, that even bothers some Indians because Indians are still imbued by a colonialist model to think um, only white, white people can create. And this is important because this, and I speak to this because this is an important discussion to have. Where is a symbol that an Indian kid has, a child has, of a dark-skinned Indian creating anything? It doesn't exist. But a white kid has pictures of Thomas Alva Edison, Einstein all these people. So this goes to multiple important issues. One, it was a dark skin Indian kid who created it. Two, it was a 14-year-old boy. Three, it was done before I came to MIT. Four, it was done in one of the poorest cities in the United States. And this story is not my story. This is a story of the fact that innovation is in everyone's DNA. I just happened to be a smart kid and I saw these secretaries who had a problem. They were typing away on paper all day. I wanted to help them. I solved a real problem. 
That is innovation. Innovation can occur anytime, any place by anybody. So the key thing everyone needs to understand is that Ray Tomlinson did not invent email. Complete bullshit. Complete fabrication. He did simple exchange of text messages. But the fact that they took that 15-minute thing and have said he created, that is absolute fake news. It is the biggest lie in innovation history, period. Sure. Thanks, Dr. Shiva. I would now like you to, like these kids really are dying to know what should they do to be innovative? What kind of skill set, mindset do should they have? Yeah, so I wrote, uh, yeah, I wrote a small book called The Seven Secrets of Innovation, okay? Great. And you can find it on Amazon. It's a very short book I wrote, um, you know, what, a, what you can learn from a 14-year-old boy. Number one, let's start with what is innovation, okay? Um, innovation is not working in a lab and discovering something. That's not innovation, okay? Innovation is, you number one, you have to find a real problem, Okay? A problem. Then you figure out what you think may be a solution. So innovation is an iterative process. And then third, you're finding a customer for that, which is a person who has a problem. And in this case, it was the secretaries. Okay. The fourth thing is you're going to come up with something that may not be perfect. Then you're going to Give it to your customers sooner than later. Even if it's the worst initial prototype, it's better off getting it to your customers. Why? Because your cus- it's a co-development process. The customers are going to give you feedback. Because in this case, the secretary is giving me feedback. Oh, we have to have the inbox. We have to have registered mail. We have to have BCC. Because if they were going to move from this to this, right? So right. You're, you have to work. You have to have a customer. You have to then get feedback from that customer. And recognize that even if they hate your product and they think what you did was horrible, that's not a bad thing because you are now 10 years ahead of someone who didn't even create something, prototype it and get a customer. And then you have to recognize that in this process, it's very, very important to have a mentor. Okay. Someone who's been there before, who can support you, right? Who can give you ideas, right? So you don't make certain mistakes. In the invent in the current model of invention, what people are brainwashed to think is you need big academia, big universities, you need a big corporation, right? And or big military. So the brainwashing that has occurred is people think innovation comes from the military, industrial, academic complex. So MIT, right? Uh, IBM, military. It's called the golden triangle. Okay, this is what the brainwashing that academics do. The truth is, innovation comes from three ingredients. Number one, uh, a family. You have to have someone who supports you. It could be a single parent, double parent. You have a loving family. You have a mentor and you have access to some basic infrastructure. Okay, it's that triangle that gave rise to the invention of email. So if you want to create something, you should find a mentor. Make sure you get access to some today. More, most of you have access to more infrastructure than I had in 1978. Okay. And it's really important to have some support. And these are the core ingredients of, of real innovation. And this is why it can occur anytime, you know, any place by anybody. The issue is as the individual want to innovate. So we set up an organization. I select five to eight students every year. If you go to innovationcorps.org, I'll show you that. And I give, I mentor people, I give people uh, about a half a lakh and we actually uh, recognize people, but we're looking for people who have actually done this process where they, and it could be any type of thing. It doesn't have to be email. It doesn't have to be you, you, you're going to Mars. It could be even be something extremely small. All right. Is it uh, very important for people to say patent, whatever they make, because there could never be a. Um, a perfect stage for maybe even patenting. So is patenting very important to inventors? Yeah, well, yeah. So so look, what's happened is that in the United States, the patent laws were created by the founders like uh, Franklin and Jefferson 
because they themselves are inventors. Really? Right? Uh, Washington. Today, 90% of the politicians can't invent anything. They don't know anything. So they don't even know the intellectual property laws, what should be done even to protect future innovators. But the patent system was originally created to support small inventors. Okay. What happened over the last 30 years is there were people called patent trolls, people who started patenting nonsensical things. They didn't even make anything. They just used the patent system to patent something to then sue somebody. So about 10 years ago, some of the big companies, Google and Facebook and these large companies said, oh, we should eliminate patents because they were being sued. But what they want to do is they want the big companies want to go to trade secrets. They want to eliminate patents so they get to protect everything. And even when they do patents, software patents have become even harder now. Mm-hmm. Okay, because with the Alice ruling. So the goal is to suppress small inventors. So it's really, in my view, it's very, very important to patent. Okay. You have to find the right way to patent. Okay. Or, and you have to, you know, so in 1978, I never patented anything. I, everyone came in. My stuff, when it went into the copyright office in 1982, all my code was accessible to everyone. So you will see if you look at the history of email, 1982 was when I copyrighted email in 1984, you see the first true email system coming out, another one called Eudora. Mine was the first, but you see then other ones. But between 1978 to 1993, email was an inter-office application. This is something people need to remember. People used it in the business environment. Only 1993, when the World Wide Web came, did email became a consumer application. Hotmail, right? All those other things, right? Yahoo, Gmail, et cetera. But email existed long before that. But yeah, I think patents are important, uh, but you have to be able to patent the right way. Software patents are much harder right now. So if you're writing software, um, it's a very, you have to find the right attorney to do it. There's some very specific laws right now. Okay. So it's uh, like one needs to understand the legality uh, part also to do that. And uh, there are uh, like every work is anyway a derivative. So how far should the derivative go before becoming unique? Like, see, every small thing changed is an innovation, right? So you can't be patenting every small change. Well, the patent laws are set up so you can. The the whole goal of the patent philosophy was that you have something Mm -hmm. and you want to encourage someone to improve it. Okay. Right. Right. And in fact, the thing that you patent, it's only owned for 20 years. So the patent, right. so you, and then after 20 years, the life of the patent goes away. But let's say, yeah, I mean, the whole goal of patenting is to support advancements. Right. Um, you know, in the case of the invention of email, it didn't exist before at all. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the patent system, so patenting and copyright are two different things. If you wrote Romeo and Juliet, the play about two young lovers, mm-hmm. you get a copyright for that. Okay. Right. If mm-hmm. someone else can actually create another book called Romeo and Juliet, in fact, as long as they don't copy every word, copyright only protects the literal copying. So the problem is when you invent something like software, mm-hmm. um, you want to be able to protect the ideas like the inbox, outbox folders, how I interconnected them okay. in electronic format. You follow? So copyright law didn't allow that protection. Mm-hmm. So that's why other people were able to create other versions of email. This is what the this is the problem with politicians. In only 1994 did the, did the Court of Appeals in the United States say, wait a minute, software is actually a digital machine. It's no different than creating an iPhone, but it's you don't see it physically. Mm-hmm. in the world of bits and bytes. So only in 1994 was software be able to be patented. And in fact, after that, I got three patents for other email technologies that I created for automatically analyzing email, which I built a very large company out of called EchoMail. But the point is prior to 1994, the court systems didn't understand what software was. Mm-hmm. Okay, and can uh, like this is of course like you have uh, uh, mentioned this a little earlier also, but just uh, can an institution help in creating an innovative mindset? 
like for example dsu here would like to create an innovative mindset although knowing that you have to have some kind of a mindset before even getting into innovation well so look, what can an institution do there yeah so when i was in india you know when i was in 2009 when i went I went back to do my fulbright i was leaving india and i was uh recruited by the indian government to run the largest innovation center there under csir and and organizations like csir and others have wanted to create a you know silicon valley innovation hub mm -hmm. right so there's one model which says okay we're going to plow billions of dollars and in one area we're going to create these innovation centers okay and what you really find is they're not really innovating anything i'm sorry twitter is not an innovation facebook is really not anything significant okay it's existed it's not any breakthrough innovations yeah, the kind what, of commercial products out of derivatives well, yeah, of innovation there's a well it's not an it's not any so there's a book that peter thiel wrote called zero to one email was a true innovation it mm -hmm. never existed before right. cytosol was a true innovation right the light bulb was a true innovation or flight but we don't see any great innovations in the last 70 years we really don't mm -hmm. why because like you do genetically engineered food where people think you're going to engineer the right food people right. are trying to engineer innovation when innovation is actually much more of a wild seed okay innovation by its nature means it's rebellious it's revolutionary it goes against the popular mindset Mm -hmm. So it's somewhat of an oxymoron to think you're going to institutionalize innovation when innovation by its nature is anti-institution. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, this absolutely. Is this is why the invention of email took place in a small university. It didn't occur in a big university. In fact, mm -hmm. in fact, let me give you an. Uh, when my issue occurred, um, I heard about a story of a Michigan mechanic. You know the windshield wipers where they can automatically yeah. send the water. Well, that was stolen by two MIT professors by a mechanic in Michigan. An MIT professor who was about to get his tenureship at MIT in the history of science researched this and he wrote an article saying that MIT didn't invent control systems. It was a Michigan mechanic. When he mm -hmm. wrote that article, MIT fired him. Okay, because it was going against a big narrative. Right. But you will see repeatedly, by the way, a 14 year old boy invented TV. Look it up, Philo Farnsworth. He okay. invented it, very similar conditions to mine in a small farm. He saw how the, the animals were doing this. He named it, uh, he called the television, okay? Oh. RCA went to his home, stole it, and they started manufacturing it, violating the US patent laws. He didn't, it took him 19 years to finally win it. He won it, but with only one year of patent life left. Oh, he died an alcoholic. Sixty years later, there's a statue of him now, the the boy who invented TV. So you have to understand this concept of plowing money into the centers of innovation. Mm -hmm. In my view, is just nonsense, because innovation is more of a weed. Okay, it's you throw a bunch of seeds out into the forest and innovation because it's everywhere. So I have a big problem with these people saying they're gonna they're going yeah. to institutionalize innovation. Okay. Right. You can be a catalyst for it, like the mentor was for me or my parents or my grandparents. I saw how hard they worked. I saw how these secretaries worked. I learned skills. And out of that innovation came. You see? Mm -hmm. So uh I think what they are innovating are inventions that may not have any real significant human value. How many innovations are we really missing? Because we don't, imagine instead of billions of dollars going into Silicon Valley, a few thousand dollars went everywhere. You would probably right. have all sorts, I'm not talking about big inventions, I'm talking about all sorts of problems being solved in a much more wide way. So I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't believe you can institutionalize innovation i th i think it's a scam and i think so we can kind of uh, uh, try to create an ecosystem which nurtures people and guides them when required that kind well, of like mentorship I think that, that ecosystem has always existed independent in the indian environment for example or in right. even in the us Absolutely. environment 
when people had to solve real problems, when they were resilient, um, when uh, government wasn't there helping all of this, you say, or, or trying to confuse people. I think the reality is government can enhance, be a catalyst, but government plowing in money to these large centers of innovation, they're not really doing much, except you know some people make a lot of money and they actually suppress innovation. They get all their money into one institution, like let's say mm -hmm. Kendall Square, Silicon Valley, something occurs somewhere else, they either plagiarize it and steal it, or they suppress that model. So I think the real issue is, you know, supporting this in small ways, parents need to be trained. You know, that's why I wrote this book called The Seven Secrets of Innovation, how you can help your child. Mentors, right? Infrastructure. So if you make infrastructure more accessible, right. that can help innovation, right? So I was given access to this lab in Newark, New Jersey. So one of the things I think can help innovation is if you have more dispersed access to infrastructure, like obviously the internet, um, sure. in small villages and small cities, if you can set up areas where there's some infrastructure, even tools, right? People can make things, uh, build things, access to certain very basic tools, um, hardware tools, right? Circuit tools, right? Now you're seeding it. You're basically putting fertilizer a bunch of places. And if the right seed hits that, you can grow. So that's the model that I think and... Um, that I, I think, you know, from my own experience, that's where I think real innovation comes from. Yeah, I think what is, I can. What is organic innovation, like organic food, and the other right. is genetic modified innovation? Exactly. Uh, in fact, I remember something from a book called Outliers, where they said, like, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates had um, a, a little kind of unfair access to, um, like, tools or oh, computers. Yeah, right, yeah that helped them create. So if we give kids a lot of access to things, I think the first thing is gets done there. Give them well, first of all, access, first of all, unlimited access, right? First of all, Bill, Bill Gates right. didn't invent DOS. He yeah. stole it from someone else. He bought it from someone else. What he had was he has access to his mother and father. His, his mother sat next, uh, was a part of the United Way, which had access to IBM. Mm -hmm. And IBM was looking for an operating system for their old PCs. He knew someone else who had it. He went and bought yeah, it. Yeah, he went and bought it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm saying, he was more of a trader. Okay. Yeah. Jobs did some innovation. Okay. But the point is, both of them had access to infrastructure. Yeah. Gates had access to his parents who were lawyers. He mm -hmm. had access to contacts, networking. Um, but infrastructure is key. Key. That's why $1 in infrastructure investment returns $6 back to any country. $1 in giving people away stuff, you lose 60 cents. So today you have people simply giving away people stuff and, with their, and to buy votes, for example, versus doing the hard thing, which is spending in long-term infrastructure. So infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure is how you actually drive innovation. In fact, uh, one beautiful story uh, turned up in Kasparov. Gary Kasparov, maybe everybody knows, has been one of the greatest chess players. So he said once he was playing in Europe and he was staying in somebody's house and he saw a computer. Then he asked, uh, he saw how the kid in the house was getting smart. So he requested the organizers of the tournament that do not give me any cash just send an equivalent number of computers to Russia. We need it for our kids. Yeah. It's a beautiful story about uh, leadership being shown by, leader, uh, by a winner, by a champion, that the kids need it. That's it. Yeah, so it's infrastructure. And it doesn't have to be large. The most important other thing is to expose people to problems. Right. Um, real problems, not fake problems. Mm -hmm. um, people need to really look at real problems. And India has many, many opportunities there for innovation. You see the average Indian, if he's driving along and he has a problem with his car, he doesn't call AAA. He figures out how to fix it. Okay. He'll put some stick here, do this, and, right. the, and he'll get the car going. That's innovation. Okay. Right. It's being resourceful. And the real sign of genius is resourcefulness. What do you do with minimal stuff that you have? You know, what can you do with 
little. That's where innovation comes from. There are people who get lots and lots of money, tremendous amounts of infrastructure, um, and they innovate very little. But people who have very little and are just given a little bit, it's like a starving person. You give them food, you know, just a little bit, and then they survive massively or they figure out how to take advantage of that. So it's not that we want people to be starving, but the goal is it is the right infrastructure at the right time for the right set of people. That's what's needed. Yeah, well said. Uh, basically, it is uh, the most important thing, like you said, is uh, exposure to problem or I would uh, maybe rephrase it like ability to even see problems is uh, could be a key to innovation. Like, Benit, did the students have any questions? Yeah, I have a lot of yeah. them written uh, with me. Okay. I'm actually uh, saying out of those, so a lot of uh, them were answered by you. Uh, like Ratan Kumar, Rishu Gupta, Abhishek. Uh, Abhishek Roka had a question that how did you create it on paper or direct coding? Although I know it, but I think you can. Uh, well, you them. did both. You know, in those days, we, you know, look, uh, you have to do both. So, you know, initially you wrote it on, you know, paper, but it was coded. I mean, in Fortran 4, uh, a programming language that was for computing. I had to do all of this in 8K of memory. I literally wrote my own memory management systems. Everything was done from scratch. So in 8K of memory, 50,000 codes, so you have the user interface, and I would swap in code. So this was uh, 50,000 lines of code written in Fortran, which was not intended for text processing. It was really interested for numerical processing. Mm -hmm. And so it was very, very limited you know, resources I had, but within that, we wrote the entire system. It wasn't just 15 lines of code, okay? Yeah. Simply to exchange text messages which someone else had already done. This was the entire system. It is so ludicrous that every Indian in India doesn't appreciate this and fight for it. The other thing you learn is you have to fight for your, this is the big lesson I learned. You have to fight. If you create something, you have to fight for your credit. You can't let other people steal it. The lucky thing was I did copyright it. The thing I didn't do, which I should have done, was to promote myself for the things I actually did. Mm. Okay? So these other people have big PR machines, so they promote themselves. Right? So they're backed by their uh, companies or corporations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the case of Raytheon, Raytheon conflated, which means inflated what they did. They didn't create email. This guy didn't create email. He himself admits, I wrote 15 lines of code. That's not email. Right. He, they, they branded the at symbol. Okay? Okay. That's what question. they did. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, right now, I'm also like mentoring certain students selected uh, through a very rigorous process who are uh, going to represent India in world skills. And they have some questions. These are kids who really love innovation, who really uh, love designing things. And my mission has been to expose them to real problems. So one of them, Kopal has asked that being an entrepreneur yourself, what advice do you have for young Indian entrepreneurs? Because some of them want to be entrepreneurs also. Well, whether it's an Indian entrepreneur or it's any entrepreneur, any yeah. child on the planet, the questions, the answer is actually the same. Number one, uh, find a mentor. Number two, find a real problem that you want to actually solve, okay? Um, and number three, throw yourself into it, okay? Because being an entrepreneur is fundamentally being a revolutionary because you're literally jumping into something. It's like you're jumping into a den of tigers, and then you have to create the tools to defend yourself against those tigers, okay? So it's not something you can, you have to just throw yourself into these things. And in my own journey, when I look back at all the things I've done, if I actually knew that I would have had to do that and make all those mistakes, you would never be an entrepreneur, okay? It's almost good to not know a lot of stuff, okay? <laughs> because if you know too much and you don't go through the experience, you will second guess yourself. Entrepreneurs go into, uh, you know, um, uh, go into the darkness, okay, to Perfect. find the light, okay. And uh, 
entrepreneur is 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 actually a word that originates from the Upanishads. Okay, it's okay. not the French word. It's a word that originates from the Antaprerana. Okay, it comes from the Upanishads. Yeah. Wow. So, so you you should understand. It's a word that actually comes from Upanishad. the Indian Upanishads. Okay. It doesn't. It's not a French term. Okay. It's a very different term. Okay. Um, so it's someone who determines their own destiny. That's what it really means. So that's what entrepreneurs do. Wow. Um, we're not waiting for someone else. We're not waiting for some government policy. We're not waiting for someone. You go and create things. And it's a very, very important. And to me, it's a very deeply spiritual activity because you're recognizing your own divinity. From an Indian standpoint, the entire basis of the Indian spirituality, and I don't mean Hindus, I mean Indus Valley people, mm-hmm. was the fact that there was a human being and then here's your creator. And the idea was for you to interconnect with your creator, the individual connecting with their creator. And it was a very deeply personal relationship. Mm-hmm. And the idea was everything should be removed to have that interconnection. And that is what an entrepreneur is. You are pursuing your own destiny. And um, so to me, being an entrepreneur is probably one of the highest forms of exercising yourself as a human being, because you have to show courage. You have to be willing to withstand people saying you can't do it. When I was a 14-year-old kid, these doctors said, why are you doing email? No one's going to use it. Email will never work. In fact, that's been going on even until now, right? <laughs> people said email's dead, email's dead, email's dead. Email keeps surviving, Okay. So the experts, 99% of the experts are not experts. They don't even know what they're talking about because many of them have never done anything. The only people people should trust are working people. Trust your mother and father if they're doing something. Go trust the electrician. Go trust the plumber. Go trust people who actually solve problems every day. Do not trust anyone who doesn't solve a problem because the people who solve problems, you will learn a lot from them. Engineers solve problems. Scientists sometimes make up problems. Okay. But engineers are always solving problems. An electrician is solving problems. So um, you need to be in the right environment and you need to respect everyday people. You have to respect secretaries. You have to respect, uh, you know, the custodial worker. You should respect the people actually do stuff with their hands because they're actually solving stuff every day. Right. And in fact, a lot of invention can even come by seeing uh, like what you mentioned, I don't know whether you know the word like India in India, we say jugad. So if your plumber is using a jugad or a trick to handle something, so there is an invention waiting there, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. That can be converted into an invention if you put your mind yeah. to it. And you can all you also end up helping that plumber solve it. And yeah. So uh, Shreyas Gujarati had a question. If you have invented something new, how to find right people and work on things that always keeps you ahead of the problem? I don't know if uh, this is something that can be addressed, but yes, he has this. Well, I think that's where you need to build community and you need to make friends and you need to interconnect with other people. Um, And I think uh, that's where it's really, I think that's where. you can help catalyze that if you put people and look, there's a famous thing saying, what is luck? Luck is really not luck. You can actually create luck. If you actually work hard and you keep putting yourself in the right situations, you'll bump into the right things. If you simply stay alone somewhere and you don't interact with other people, you're never going to create luck. Um, One of the things I wanted to share with you, I think I have, um, this is a, you know, one of the new innovations we've created is the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Mm-hmm. You see here, freedom, where you allow people to talk, debate, have open access, is the seed that gives innovation. Because without openness and, you know, as if you have censorship, control, you can't, the reason the United States did so well is because of the Bill of Rights, First Amendment, Second Amendment, all those things. I would argue that freedom is one of the most essential things to innovation. But you need infrastructure that supports freedom and innovation. So for me, you know, MIT offered that. But one of the things that goes on is if you, so Echo Mail was one of the other inventions I did long after email. And we built this company. It was an infrastructure mm-hmm. where 
I created technology to automatically analyze email for the White House when I was in 1993. And then that became another invention that companies would send us their email. We would figure out the issues in that email and automatically figure out responses. Um, another thing, Cytosol is what we do today. Cytosol is another infrastructure innovation where we can literally model diseases on the computer and we are, we are discovering new products without killing animals. This is another innovation we did. It's beyond organic. We've created a systems way to identify what foods are truly healthy foods. Um, but you know, I can talk more to this, but you see, it's also important to put yourself in a diversity of knowledge bases. So here I studied biological engineering, which is a Western world of looking at the medicine, but this is the Eastern way of looking at the medicine. We, people are studying this now, the Western way, but the Eastern way, but I was very interested in combining both of these. Indian medicine, 40,000 years old, modern medicine. And um, this was an article that came out in the front page of MIT when I won my Fulbright scholarship to go back to India to study how these things were connected. And what I discovered out of that was the Indian system of medicine, which calls Vata, Pitta, Kapha, you know, there's a whole system, is actually related to general systems theory. And then I wrote a paper where I literally was the first person to bridge Eastern and Western medicine. You can get this online. There's a paper. And that related to a new technology called Your Body, Your System. All right. And that related to where we're basically today, people want to learn Ayurveda and said that they have to go to India. This tool, within 30 minutes, you can do the same thing. My point is, there are ways, and then we created a whole other school called Systems Health. So all of this came from my desire to solve this problem. What is Indian medicine? What is Western medicine? And what is the linkages? Okay. And so we've created a whole way that we're teaching people how to re-look at medicine. And then more recently, we've created a whole new innovation system where if you look at freedom, truth, and health, these are all integrated. And this has led to a whole movement called uh, Truth, Freedom, and Health. You see, so as an innovator, you can innovate in the world of medicine. You can innovate in the world of technology. Innovation is always through you. It's not like you do. So that's why the invention of email is interesting. It's not like I needed that publicity because I was inventing many things. So if you're solving a problem, you're always going to solve problems. It's in your DNA. So if you want to develop that ability, you have to have a deeply spiritual sense in some sense to realize that your life is very valuable. You're put on this earth in many ways to solve problems. So you have to make a decision. Do you want to solve problems or do you want to create problems? Okay. Of course, you can be only on one side. So Yeah. And so if you want to, well, but I'm saying that you come to a fork in the road. Sure. Where either you are going to be an innovator or you're going to be a problem creator. And some people do it explicitly and some people do it implicitly. Right. And in fact, most of people uh, stay on that side of creating problems because they do not shift to solving. Because you can't be nobody. So you either are uh, part of the problem or the solution. So best is at least for those kids who shift over to becoming problem solvers, instead of creating unnecessary interventions, it, it is good. They start taking charge of things. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to share this with you is that if you really want to look at where real innovation comes from, it comes from this triangle. You sure. need to be healthy. You need to be physically healthy. Okay? You need to have a healthy infrastructure. You need to have economic health. You need to have environments that are free. People can debate, discuss. People don't get thrown off you know, Facebook and Google for saying something wrong, okay? You can pursue truth. You can pursue the scientific method. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's going on globally right now, free, three major media companies are controlling freedom right now. This is not right. a good thing. Mm -hmm. So you stop discourse of knowledge. And because this has occurred, most of the big academic institutions, you don't really have very smart people in most of these academic institutions. You don't, because the really smart people are forced to leave because they could be revolutionary radicals. They want to, I mean, Einstein would have never made it in the modern academic institutions at all. And if you don't have proper infrastructure, health, physical health, you don't have the strength to fight for freedom or you don't have the strength to pursue truth. 
So I want people to really look at this diagram. And if you look at this diagram, it goes to the essence of the Indian systems of medicine, which say, let me go here, that you need these forces of Vat, Pitt, and Ka, movement, transport, conversion, and infrastructure storage. So this is very, very fundamental. So the, you know, if people want to go to truthfreedomhealth.com, we've created a course where we teach people this infrastructure knowledge. And it really begins with this essence of truth, freedom, and health. We have a message from um, our uh, Vice Chancellor of uh, Delhi Skill University. Uh, I'll read it uh, to you, although you can read it, but for the students also. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Shiva, for sharing. Power to you to do more. Thanks for coming to DSU. Please be you're in welcome. touch when you're next in Delhi. Yeah, I was in Delhi you know, uh, for about two years when I was the additional secretary. I don't know if you know the Indian government. That was back in 2010-11. But um, yeah. So when um, is next time around we can see you and try to meet you in India? Well, it, it, you know, you got to make an invitation. You know, I haven't sure. been to... Sir, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, but Definitely. It, was a, it was a pleasure. I hope this was helpful. But just, you know, the key takeaway is innovation anytime, anyplace, by anybody. That's what you have to remember. Sure. And uh, um, we'll, uh, with that note, I'll um, thank you so much for uh, the time you have taken out. I, I know it's pretty early in the morning there, but... For the students, we wanted it uh, because I know uh, late night the student presence uh, won't be great. So and yeah, I want to also thank John. I want to thank you, Benit, for organizing this. Uh, you know the other panelists. Uh, sure. I want to also thank Manju who helped set this up, and John Medlar. John got up at five in the morning here to get this organized. I think he's got about three hours sleep because we were awake until uh, nearly one a.m. tomorrow working on an earlier project. But we appreciate the opportunity. But the key thing is everyone who's heard this should recognize that everyone should know about the true origins of the invention of email. Because it's not just about the facts about the invention of email, but it goes to the heart of where does real innovation come from. And sharing the truth about the invention of email is being an innovator. You know, it's telling the truth, which is what innovators do. So I want everyone to do that. And it's not just because of the fact I invented email, but it goes to the much, I invented many other things. Uh, but it goes to the heart of the issue of where does innovation really come from? Right. Okay. Right and it's really, really, really important to share the facts of the invention of email globally. And everyone should boldly share it. Um, and, and, and it's part of the innovative environment. You've got to overcome the lies that are out there. And that's what innovators do. Entrepreneurs do that. You're always challenging the existing institutional nonsense in many ways. So the invention of email, sharing that is actually a practice in innovation. Of course. Okay. And uh, like uh, we also keep on trying to reinvent education in the best possible way. Technically, what happens is whatever you invent, sometimes it happens that uh, whatever you, you are going to change as is not, uh, you are not even sure whether it is in the bounds of legality at that moment. It sometimes rules are framed in a manner that it even sometimes looks illegal to do that. Suppose you want to offer, you want to have, say, degree programs which are not bound by durations. It, it looks illegal right now. Right. Well, one of the interesting things is, yeah, um, you're pushing the envelope. You know, when I, in, in 1978, I had a teacher who had to fight with the administration to allow me to work. 14-year-old kids, I had a, I'm supposed to be in school. You're not supposed to go and work in a work environment. Right. So this teacher actually had to fight and fight and fight. So you cannot be an innovator without being a fighter. You can't. And more Anyone, so, like you mentioned, more so the mentor also uh, does a lot of the fight. Sometimes he's not seen upfront, but yes. mentors do a lot yes. of fighting. Yes, I think you nailed it. That's why the mentors are important. In my case, there was that teacher, the, this woman who just recently passed away, and Dr. Michelson. Without them, they were the ones who fought so I could travel 30 miles in the middle of school, work, and then go back. It was unbelievable, right? Today, parents right. are afraid to send their kids out the door by themselves. 
my parents allowed me to travel from New Jersey all the way to New York in a train in one of the most criminal, uh, uh, one of the most crime infested areas at that time in New York, where people would sell drugs on the streets. I was a 14 year old kid walking back and forth. No parent would allow that now in retrospect. You know? A lot of people are involved in one thing that happens. Right. They have their roles, which is right. which we have to we have to appreciate our parents and teachers a lot. Yes, yeah. they make things happen for us. Yeah. So on All that right. note, I think um, let us close today's session. It was a pleasure having you, Dr. Niharika, on uh, the panel. And thank you very much for inspiring us. You're welcome. Be well. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Recording stopped.